From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. It's 2020 and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria Vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. From director Joe Begos comes Fangoria's latest movie, VFW. It's like John Carpenter directed an Expendables movie, except with a lot more mutants, drugs, insanity, and heart. A group of war veterans must defend their local VFW posts and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of punk mutants. The cast includes pretty much anyone who was ever in something you rented at Blockbuster. Stephen Lang, Martin Cove, William Sadler, Fred the Hammer Williamson, George Went, and David Patrick Kelly. Now streaming on demand. So get on it. Before I get into your questions, I just wanted to mention a couple of projects I have out that I'd love for you to know about. First of all, my very first audiobook, A Life in the Cinema, is now available on Audible. These are eight short stories that I wrote, and they are read by Matt Frewer, Stephen Weber, the late Miguel Ferrer, and myself, with introduction by Stephen King and afterward by Toby Hooper, read by Joe Lansdale. Like I said, it's now available on Audible. Secondly, back in my youth, I was lead singer and songwriter in a progressive rock band with a sense of humor called Horse Feathers. Though we never released an album back in the day, we recorded a lot. We've gone back to several of our best recordings, improved the technology, added some new vocals and instrumentation, and the result is our first album, Symphony for a Million Mice. It will be available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube Music, and all your favorite streaming apps, as well as on CD in a couple of select stores and on our website, horsefeathersmusic.com, on March 20th. And now, your questions, please. 
I'm Mick Garrison. Welcome once again to Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Well, actually, you will ask producer Joe Russo, and producer Joe will ask me on your behalf. Hello, Mick. What do we got going today, Joe? Well, this is a really tough one to Uh-oh. start off. Momo asks, what is your shoe size? Oh, <laughs> 10. Yeah? Yeah. Well, there you go. Momo, you have your answer. Uh, staying on the topic of feet. <laughs> <laughs> this is the foot episode the for, foot. This is, for all this you is, fetishists this is, uh, out there. This is yeah. the one that Quentin's going to listen to. Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> Patrick asks, how did you hurt your foot on the set of The Shining? I don't know how anybody knew that I hurt my foot. I actually broke it on the set of The Shining. Oh, wow. Um, not that I knew until well after, but it became giant after I kicked an apple box in frustration when we were shooting one of the scenes. Um, And I did not know that this apple box was so well made with steel reinforcements. Oh, no. So it was a scene. You know, I'm always very encouraging of my actors and do everything I can to make them feel comfortable and and to give them the space to do their work. And it was a scene in which Stephen King had written a lot of dialogue for the Melvin Van Peebles character. Mm. And Melvin is a terrific guy, a brilliant director, and a really good actor. But long speeches were not his forte. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was very important. It's out on the swing set when young Danny is learning about The Shining from uh, from Dick Halloran. Mm -hmm. And so... We had cue cards made up and everything, and, and Melvin was having a tough time with it. The sun was passing overhead, getting less and less of our day Ooh, yeah. in and trying to get this very important uh, dialogue that was explanatory and expository and, and explained what The Shining was right. and how Danny had it. Something you couldn't really miss. You can't miss this. <laughs> Fortunately... That's what editing is for, and sure. all of the pieces of time get cut together mm-hmm. into the scene that becomes magical if you're lucky. Right. This was excruciating. <laughs> it was very difficult. He was having a tough time with the dialogue, which was admittedly very difficult dialogue. And I'm never going to take it out on an actor. And just my frustration, I didn't think anybody saw me, uh, but I just kicked an apple box. And... I broke my foot doing it. And so I just kind of hobbled without anybody knowing. And (laughs) certainly, certainly Melvin never knew that. How how far were you into production when this happened? We were well into production. So so, like how many weeks were you walking around with a broken foot? Well, I never had a cast. It was well into it. Um, I just hobbled for a bit. It was fractured. It wasn't shattered, broken. But, you know, I, I hobbled for a couple of weeks without anybody really noticing. That's that's kind of amazing. Uh, staying on, we tell the, the truth on this. That's show. right. Well, that's yeah. that's why it's Ask Mick Anything. That's right. Uh, staying on the Stephen King track for a minute. Uh, today, the day of recording, is the last episode of The Outsider. Yes. And uh, Nutdale asks, "What's your opinion on HBO's adaptation of The Outsider?" I think it's one of the best King adaptations ever. I, I love how it's taken seriously, and it's not done like a horror show. Mm. 
It's like a really gripping, serious, artfully done drama. The cast is amazing. The writers, I mean, chiefly it was Richard Price, but Dennis Lehane, who's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. novelists, Mm -hmm. who who wrote the book Mystic River um, and is just a, a great, great writer. They're writing drama that has a supernatural quality to it and supernatural elements, but they don't treat it as if it's, you know, we're making a horror show. Right. It's very filled with integrity and dramatic depth, and the humanity of it is fantastic. I, I think it's a wonderful show. I do, too. I do, too. I'm really excited to see if they can stick How the landing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Mus Hussein writes, do you think with the success of Lee Winnell's Invisible Man that we might be at the start of a Universal Monsters cinematic revival. Maybe. I mean, yeah, it, it, it I could be too. good. It could be bad. Right. Um, they keep trying with Van Helsing and with sure. the, the Wolfman and, and all these things that have not worked yet. Invisible Man is a success on, on a modest level because it, budgetarily it was not an expensive film to make, so it was quite profitable. Right. So we'll see. I mean, will we ever get Bill Condon's Bride of Frankenstein? You know, what I don't want to see is the Marvel Universe done with monsters. Yeah. Well, and I think Lee's been pretty self... He's been out there saying he wasn't intending to do that or doesn't really think that Invisible Man was built for that. I think it was, in his mind, a one-off, and it was one of the smaller characters in the pantheon of universal horror. Absolutely. Uh, and it, I, yeah. I saw it at the, at the WGA the other night. He said, you know, he didn't feel the pressure of, you know, people who make Marvel movies or, you know, anything that's in right. kind of the fandom. because It wasn't the universal universe. Well, he yeah. said there's not going to be about a bunch of 100-year-old Invisible Man fans coming after him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, 1932 was yeah, a long right. time ago. People mention more uh, Hollow Man and, right. and uh, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, people forget about the original 1932 version, which was fantastic. I, I just hope that if they are going to pull the trigger and make more of them, that they have... 35, maybe. You know, if they have a vision as bold and interesting as Lee's was, that yeah. that's what they wait for, and they don't just push them into production. Yeah, and it attempted to tell it in a dramatic way mm-hmm. again the genre elements of it were not the most important part of it and right. did not drive it right right which we always say is the you know best recipe for good horror here's hoping um pakhasic writes <laughs> um are we concerned about uh apocalyptic post-apocalyptic horror stories you know, kind of like the stand, uh, being more frightening and making a comeback thanks to the coronavirus. Well, I don't want to thank the coronavirus for anything. Uh, (laughs) But, um, you know, having made the stand and been aware of what happens in a story is not the same as what happens in real life. And I don't want it to reflect the stand where 99% of the population of the world is killed off by Captain Trips. Right. Um, Right. But yeah, the more... 
reality-based your horror is, the more frightening it is, the mm -hmm. more you can identify with it, and the, the possibility, the things that are going on now, where everywhere it's popping up all over the place in unexpected places and unexplainable places where you can't say, oh, these people were just in Wuhan or in Tokyo or in South Korea. Right. They're popping up all over the place. And, and yeah, it's frightening because it can very possibly affect us. When you were working on the stand, did you ever feel more fear or in tune because of germs? Like, did that ever, like, like did it ever get in your head? Like, like I remember reading The Hot Zone when I was a kid, and yeah. I became, like, a total germaphobe for a little while afterwards. You know, I've uh, always been fairly, uh, well, a very clean fellow. Right. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. but not a germaphobe. Um, but the making of the stand, we tried to focus in on the reality of it. And, you know, King had done his research on that. Right. And it seemed possible, but the vast scope of it was so big, we all felt like we were dealing with a, a science fiction premise. Right. But now that premise doesn't seem to have the f fiction attached attached to the science. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's scary stuff. But people are renting Contagion and sure and uh, the Andromeda Strain. And uh, so, is the this the is this the that. best marketing that Josh Boone could hope for <laughs> with his remake? The best or the worst? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. If we're around to see it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, friend of the show uh, and, and f member of the Fangoria family, Rob Galuzzo, asks... Hey, Rob. Uh, Mick, as a fellow musician turned filmmaker, how have your experiences being in a band influenced your approach to filmmaking, if they have at all? For me personally, it taught me about self-promotion. A little of that, not, not as much that, but it has affected me in a pretty major way. You know, uh, my band Horse Feathers, we were together in the 70s, and, and um, coincidentally, the timing right now is that we've taken a bunch of our recordings. Our keyboard player and primary composer, Bill Burney, has done a remix uh, very extensive remixes on uh, over an hour's worth of material. I'm holding the CD in my hand. You are indeed. <laughs> and we've added new vocals and new instrumentation, and we're putting out our first album um, now. But And when the week this comes out, it, you'll be doing a launch party at... Our launch party at Dark Delicacy is on March 21st, so on Saturday. So, um, and all the guys in the band, other than our guitarist, who passed away in the 90s, will be there... And it's kind of an exciting reunion, you know. It's it's old music, music, but it's new music too. But what Horse Feathers was was a progressive rock band. We weren't a three chord thrash band or punk band or whatever. It was classically inspired. Lots of complicated arrangements and time changes and stuff. Not in an esoteric way. It's very accessible stuff. And we also had a sense of humor, which is rare in progressive rock. It's pretty serious and <laughs> takes itself pretty seriously. But what I learned was trying to go beyond the boundaries of what was popular. Because I was never a popular kid in school. I never liked what was popular better than what was more interesting and outre. And Horse Feathers really, even if our reach exceeded our grasp at times, was about doing something that wasn't like everything else. And I would like to think that I brought that into my writing as, as a fiction writer and novelist, as well as my screenwriting and filmmaking. Is There's that reach to want to go beyond the norm. And I learned that 
from being in this band starting at age 18. And uh, How so, did you guys meet? We met, um, I was going to college with Bill Burney at Grossmont College uh, east of San Diego. And the other three guys and Bill had all been friends since grade school. And so Bill w had a recording studio in his home and he would uh, bring people over to other musicians over to record songs that he'd written. And Bill and I were in television production class in college. Uh, and uh, he said, do you play any instruments? I, I'm recording these songs and stuff. And I said, well, maybe I can sing. <laughs> I, I'd never done it publicly. I was going to say, did you, did you know? I, I'd never done it publicly, but I knew I could carry a tune. And, okay. I, and I was also a music journalist at the time. So right. sure. I was very passionate about music. Right, right, and right. wrote about it and yeah. reviewed it and interviewed musicians and all. Um, and so... We all met at Bill's house at his Meltrov recording studio, and uh, it was just a bunch of friends doing songs, and then it started to cement into a real uh, band where we would actually perform. Uh, at the college Bill and I were attending, we did a big concert with some recording acts that there were a couple of thousand people out there, and I had never performed in public in my life. And I was on the verge of throwing up before going out on the stage. But that was where it began. And then it was seven years together with the same wow. five guys, never changing. And all original music that became more and more complex and, and interesting and challenging and, and a lot of fun. And so it, was, it, it definitely changed my life in a lot of ways. I was a very shy kid. And being lead singer in a band brought out the other non-shy part of me and became a fairly flamboyant performer and uh, in that way it, it changed me personally but it also opened me up to you know people wanting to get to know me and you know being social which was something I never was before but creatively it made me always want to reach for something beyond the norm. Do you think that being out there in front of everyone helped prepare you for being in front of crews and actors and giving you that confidence to not necessarily perform, but, but yeah, I'd never command, thought of it command that way. the crowd. I'd never thought of it that way, but maybe, you know, uh, part of being a filmmaker, being a director, as you know, is being able to communicate your ideas clearly. And uh, as a performer, you're communicating with an audience. So m maybe it did. I'd never thought of it that way. Good question. Well, that's why, that's why we're here to ask them, right? That's right. Even uh, if I can't supply a great answer. <laughs> well, uh, so I think we're going to wrap this up and we're going to put uh, one of the songs as a bumper to this episode. Oh, okay. So, well, so you want to tell us it. about which one? Well, we're gonna... there's a very fanciful song on here called um, Big Top Rock. And it's circus music. It's our only circus music song we ever wrote and performed. But uh, it's very playful and a lot of fun. So uh, hope you enjoy Big Top Rock. And meanwhile, if you have more questions for me, please write to Joe Russo Tweets on Twitter, uh, to Mick Garris PM, at Mick Garris PM on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can always post on the Facebook page, Postmortem with Mick Garris. Thank you, Mick.
listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.